Welcome to the Places Where We Go podcast. Hello, I'm Julie. And I'm Art. We're the hosts of the Places Where We Go podcast. Join us as we share our travel stories. We'll tell you about where we've been, what we saw, and what we did. We're always looking for a bit of an adventure. Sometimes we travel far. Sometimes we explore the places in our own local backyard. Wherever we go, we'll let you know about the highlights and top tips to help you plan your future adventures. This is the Places Where We Go podcast. Thanks for joining us today. And on the Places Where We Go, today we're going to take you to the Tower of London, one of the key attractions in London, England. Very popular site. I actually enjoyed it, but it was quite crowded. So be ready for that. Like a few places that we chose on our trip to the UK, we did a little bit of flipping through a tour book before we left the States. And this is one of the places that caught our eye as something that we thought we might do in London. So we decided for one of our days, this was going to be the main item on our itinerary. And it is a a must-see if you are in that area because of its history, its stories behind it. It's something that is quite iconic for that area Mm -hmm. and England itself. So the Tower of London is a fortress and a very large, mighty fortress. It's also a palace and it became, through its history we hear, it became a infamous prison. It's almost a thousand years old and it is um, named after its oldest building, which is called the White Tower. It's a World Heritage Site as of 1988 through UNESCO. So it's something that the world recognizes as quite magnificent and historical and must be maintained as original. That's one of the things I didn't know before we got there. So I remember when we were walking up to it, there was that huge sign on one of the uh, stone walls that said, hey, UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And I think over the past few years, I always seem to get excited when we come across one of these places that's got that designation, because by now we've come to quite a few, and this was another one to add to the list. Yes, and we will hit more eventually. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned, it's also over years and years, it's been in existence, residents of the monarchy in England uh, on and off. It has seen kings as Edward I, Henry III, very, very well-known kings. And in this time, it was a Catholic faith that the monarchy practiced. Originally. You see remnants and chapels and things like that within the tower itself that originally started out to be Catholic. It is a landmark that signifies both protection of the monarchy and control over the city of London. It's a gateway to the capital city, and the tower was in effect the gateway to the new Norman kingdom. It's strategically located in a bend on the River Thames, and I know I probably said that wrong again, but I'm American. It had the dual role of providing protection for the city through its immense defensive structure and the gigantic moat that was around it that is no longer filled with water, but you can see the remnants of the moat, and also to control its citizens through various means. To instill fear mm-hmm. of the power of the monarchy. Yes. Something like yes. that, right? Very, very much so. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's a little intro into what this place is. And I don't know why, but for whatever reason over the years, every time I, I would hear Tower of London, yeah, never having been to London. So, you know, keep that in mind. I'm a guy from California. But the picture that I always had in my head was, or what is the Tower Bridge? When we planned this visit, that's one of the reasons I thought when we would make this visit that right. it was going to be a fairly short trip because I thought we were going to go to something that was fairly you know compact. And when we walked up to it, it was like, oh, so so this is the Tower of London. Yeah, it's a um, castle. So maybe everybody else knows that or knew that. I did not. So, And that is the, the wonderfulness of travel. Yeah. Because you actually go to places where you have maybe a set of ideas mm -hmm. and you get there and you realize that your set of ideas were completely wrong. And there's such, there's an excitement to that. There know, was to, for me. To learning. And, yeah. So yeah. I, I learned something new. I saw something new. I was fascinated by this particular visit. Um, so let's talk about getting there. So again, we were staying on the west side of London in the Kensington area. So I guess just about everywhere in London, we hopped on the tube to get here. And so the tube is just this phenomenal transportation thing that's in London that can get you just about anywhere in the city. This turned out for us, I think that this was the longest time that we spent on the tube to get from our lodging to a location that we were going to. So I think like 14, mm -hmm. 15 stops and probably just under an hour is the time we spent. But This attraction is located within walking distance of the Tower Bridge. So if you know where that is, that's right adjacent is where the Tower of London is. To get in, an adult ticket will cost you just under 30 pounds. And this was one of the attractions for which we purchased our tickets in advance, mm -hmm. along with buying the audio guide, which cost another five pounds. Well worth it. Yeah. So one thing to note, though, is if you do buy your tickets beforehand, you have to print your tickets out at home and then you present those when you get to the gate and you have to have them in physical format. So at least at the time of our visit, the site did not accept your tickets on mobile devices. So I think that we, you know, we had some where you could just present your phone, they scan your phone. This particular place, they only accepted the paper. Now you can buy a ticket that you then collect when you get there, but if you do that, they don't have a, like a fast pass line, so you just get into the regular line anyways. I guess the plus of that is you know that you have a ticket in your name, But probably the quickest way in is you buy your ticket beforehand, print it out, bring it with you. Then you're ready to go in and explore. And, and once you're in, there will be another line for the audio tour devices. We entered in through the um, Byward Tower. That's the main entrance there. And the audio tour devices were right there in the front. And there's a line for that, too. You'll immediately see yeah, it. Yeah, I think a small little kiosk almost, right? Yeah, very yeah, small, yeah. small little tiny. It was a building. I mean, you went inside yeah, to get it, yeah. but you had there, the, small. the line was outside. So let's talk a little bit about the Tower of London's history. King Edward the Confessor had no children, no bloodline to the throne. He dies and is buried in Westminster Abbey. So the last king of England was Harold Godwinson, and he ended up fighting William of the Duke of Normandy for the kingship of England at the Battle of Hastings, and William defeats Harold. 
So William makes his way to Londinium and he is crowned the new king. William the Conqueror is crowned the new king on Christmas Day in 1066. He would be the first Norman king of England. A lot of Englanders at the time did not like the fact that somebody from France was now king of England. So there were uprisings against William and William ended up leaving the area, leaving England for 11 years. He comes back to take possession of his kingship and that is when he declares that a palace should be built in the area of the Roman walls in London. And that is when the White Tower begins to be built. So the White Tower actually didn't come along until 1078. It was never completed by William the Conqueror because he died first and it was finally completed in 1100. And at that point it was used on and off by the royal monarchy for the next 500 years. And more than 900 years later, the castle that was started that long ago and this palace is still in existence today for us to tour, to explore Mm -hmm. and understand its history. And so we're going to take you through a few highlights because there's so many things to see and view. I think we're going to probably try to cover maybe about six or so of the main areas. And we're going to start off with talking about the main building that you mentioned, Julie, that this place is named after, which is the White Tower. Mm -hmm. So this particular structure is the oldest building on the site. Originally, it was a royal palace. One of the things I remember as we were walking up to it, there's this set of wooden steps on one side of the building. And there was one of the docents there who was giving us a little story about those steps and mentioned the strategy of having wooden steps on the outside. And that in part would be that if there was attackers that came in and made their way up the wooden steps, well, guess what? Wood easily burns. Mm -hmm. So those steps could be set afire and making it more difficult for the attackers to make Mm -hmm. their way into the actual structure. And my understanding is there was a tunnel that was built as an escape to get out just in case there was an attack. And as we made our way in, one of the first areas past the staircase that we came across was an area that's called the Two Princes Staircase. So there's a small staircase that's tucked away near the entrance called the Two Princes Staircase. And this is where in 1674, the skeletons of two small children were discovered at this spot. And they're believed to be the missing sons of King Edward IV. So it turns out that King Edward IV dies in 1483. At that time, his two sons are brought to the tower and the oldest of them was going to be crowned king. But circumstances were such that the uncle instead took over and was crowned instead. And that would be King Richard III. King Richard III takes the princes into his custody in the White Tower after the father dies. And after that time, after that summer where the kids were brought to the tower, there were no more recorded sightings of the young princes in the tower anymore. So the rumors... the rumors began. Yeah. 
Now, there to this day is no scientific evidence to back up the claim that the skeletons, in fact, are these princes, but the mythology has existed through the years. Even Shakespeare portrayed Richard III as an evil, scheming, murderous uncle in the play that bears the same name. So the identity of the skeletons might never be known for certain, but they both have since been moved to Westminster Abbey, where they were reburied. But again, to this day, the Church of England continues to refuse to allow anyone to exhume and examine their remains. The story seems to make sense, and I think it's very plausible that those skeletons, in fact, are the young princes, but mm-hmm. we're never, at least for now, we're not going to know for certain. Okay, so now this dark history of Richard III yes. is connected to my dear Richard Neville. There's my Neville. Okay, so let, let, let's back up just a second. Okay. So if you've listened to some of our past shows, Julie has a history of ancestry that goes back to Wales and England. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think somewhere in your family tree, there's connection to Richard Neville. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as we're doing some of our exploration, you always kept looking for any time there was a mention of people who were connected to your family branches. And when we were in the White Tower, I remember you were looking for any evidence of Richard Neville's connectivity to this site. And I think the day of our visit, you didn't see anything. Yes, I didn't see anything. And as you were speaking, it dawned on me that there was a connection with Richard III to Richard Neville. Richard III married Anne Neville who was the daughter of Richard Neville. There we go. Warwick. There you go. Okay. So these podcasts are helpful not only to help people understand where they might go and what they might visit on their tours, but it also helps us understand our own uh, (laughs) family history and things of that sort. Yeah. So in the White Tower, you're going to see so many things when when you visit, as is typical in a lot of palaces. There's the bed chambers. There's these great halls. We saw a display of armor that would have been worn by the likes of Henry VIII, many other rulers. I remember, you know, the armor that was you know, put on the horses and the weaponry was on display. And there's, you know, so much of that stuff to see. There's a Norman fireplace inside one of the rooms there that is one of the earliest known wall fireplaces in all of England, as a matter of fact. And it predates the introduction of chimney stacks as we know them. Uh, and it was built in such a way where the smoke would escape through holes in the side of the building. Yeah. So kind of... Uh, now, the room was extremely large with very high ceilings. Mm-hmm. So the smoke would rise up and disperse itself within these holes in the wall basically that were in the roof and the wall meant to just let the the smoke disappear yeah now when we were in the white tower one of the things that we latched onto, i think at least a couple of times too there would be docents that would be traveling around the various buildings and the various rooms and they would break out into descriptions of you know the various things that you'd be seeing the history surrounding them i didn't see anywhere where they were like and maybe there are planned times and places in the Tower of London when the talks happen, mm-hmm. but we just happened to like stumble across right. a couple of these and right. we would, you know, stand by and listen and, right. and learn a little bit more. So that was a supplement to the audio tour and much more deeper 
explanations of what it is that we were seeing. Mm -hmm. So when you're there, I, I would keep your eyes open for any of these docents who might be given these right. kind of impromptu descriptions mm -hmm. of the property because you'll will learn a lot. As we continued the tour, we entered into a room called St. John's Chapel. It is, they say, and the docent has said, one of the most intact and original architecture of the entire site. It was built by William the Conqueror. In William the Conqueror's time, Catholicism was very, very prominent, and William the Conqueror himself was Catholic. He built this chapel. It's been used for prayers by kings and queens, and it also has been used by the community in the area for worship. It still has regular services today. It's quite, quite amazing. I was so impressed when I walked in. I think knowing that it had such a long, long history and that it was so original mm -hmm. was extremely impressive. And it had these beautiful pillars. There was 12 mm -hmm. pillars and they're supposed to represent the 12 apostles of Christ. Three didn't have a symbol of the tower cross on it. They're not sure why only theorize that it could represent Judas, St. Peter, and Doubting Thomas. The chapel points directly to the Holy Land. A little interesting fact is Henry VIII, they believe, or it is rumored, I don't think they actually know, that he entered this chapel once. It was awaiting the outcome of Anne Boleyn's trial, his wife's trial, who was accused of witchcraft and adultery and some other stuff mm -hmm. and denied it. They say in the chapel that Henry snaps and he demands a trial for Anne. I don't understand that quote exactly because wasn't she in the midst of a trial? Is that what he was waiting upon? So it was a little confusing to me how that was written out. But hmm. the fact is that there is rumors that he went into this chapel when he was awaiting for some kind of outcome yeah. of Anne Boleyn and what would happen to yeah. her. One of the things that we had overheard from one of these docents given their impromptu talks that I mentioned a little bit ago was the story that almost sounded like they were trying to excuse to a certain extent Henry VIII's mm -hmm. mental state and behavior. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. according to the docent, Henry VIII at one point had an accident where he falls from a horse, hits the back of his head, the horse stamps on him. And when he finally comes around, he's not able to exercise. He's pounding down the food and the wine. And that's when he starts to morph into large Henry. And it's postulated that a brain injury resulted during the course of this accident that ends up damaging his judgment, right. his ability to trust people, respect people. So anyway, so that's the story that we overheard. And I think so, like when they talk about Henry snapping, demanding the trial, whatever it was, they, at least some people are relating it to, well, you know, he wasn't quite there. He might have a brain injury yeah. and he wasn't quite himself. Yeah. There were prisoners in the White Tower too, but that didn't happen until around 1490. On the chapel, like for me, one of the things that was different about the chapel than I think anything else that we saw in the Tower of London was not only because it was fairly original, fairly pristine, but the fact that it's still used today mm -hmm. 
made it seem more of a, a living dynamic place where everything else was more of this historical examples of things that were back in the day, you know, they were where people lived hundreds of years ago, but they don't live there today. You know, yeah. the implements they used hundreds of years ago, but they don't use today. But the chapel is still used in a certain way today, the same way it would have been used in the time of the monarchy ancestors who well, lived here. Well, despite the fact that it was used as a quote-unquote storeroom for ledgers and and papers and things like that mm. during the time of mm. the protestant reformation mm -hmm. so it became unused as a chapel for a long period of time and it didn't open up to the public until just recently which is you know kind of nice for us i'm so glad we saw that because it was quite the sight to yeah me. i guess it was queen elizabeth ii that actually converted this mm -hmm. as a place that the public could view. So probably, yeah, very recent history. They weren't going to restore it. They weren't going to do anything yeah. to it until Prince Albert stepped in mm. and said, uh, no, 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 we need to restore this. Mm -hmm. This is one of the, the sites that you'll definitely want to see because it's quite special. Mm -hmm. Another site on the grounds of the Tower of London that has a different type of history is the Traitor's Gate. So this gate is adjacent to and facing the River Thames. And this would be the place where when British prisoners who were accused of treason were taken to the Tower of London, this is the route by which they would be taken in. So this was the entrance where condemned prisoners would enter the Tower of London and where such well-known figures as Sir Thomas More and Queen Elizabeth I would enter the tower through this traitor gate. So you can actually see that as you're making your way through the property. And we learned that until the very late 17th century, the heads of prisoners who were executed were displayed on pikes beneath the bridge, which would have been very unsettling for new prisoners to view as they made their way through the gates yeah, to uh, see what their fate was going to be. Mm -hmm. And over the centuries, hundreds of prisoners passed through these gates, many never to return alive. We had spent the morning mostly at the White Tower and, and wandering the grounds a little bit. And by the time that we had finished our tour of the White Tower, we came out to quite a line for the crown jewels. It was huge. It was like Disneyland. Mm -hmm. You was just back and forth wrapping around. By the time you got inside, you still were wrapping around and it moved quickly. Yeah, I mean, but, it wasn't. But when we first saw that line, I thought we were going to be stuck in that for hours. Yeah. And, and by that time, I think I was a little overwhelmed with the crowds. It, it did get quite crowded. This was the most crowded place of anything that we visited yeah. during our entire UK trip. Yeah. Easily. And for reasons that on that day, I can't tell you, but it overwhelmed me. And I told you I need a break. Yeah, a little anxiety A little anxiety, situation. just a little. So we stopped for a little bit break, but we did get back in line. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it was maybe about 30 minutes to get to the inside. To the front door. To the front door, yeah. yeah. So it, it didn't seem too bad. Yeah, I was so excited when we got to the front door, Julie. I thought because, because again, I thought it was going to be like hours done. to get that yeah. far. And then we get to the front door and I thought, hey, hey we're here. No, we weren't. 
But by the time you got through the front door, at least you had imagery to look at. Yeah. So it was a little bit easier to go through the lines. Yeah. There's they had, what would you call like, it? Like, like graphic? Wall, wall projections? Yeah, wall projections on the walls yeah. depicting, you know, some of what the crown jewels were and, and yeah. pictures of the monarchy yeah. and, you know, stuff like that. There's more line when you get inside the front door. Well, that's what Arthur's saying. Yes. yes. So we finally get to see the exhibit itself. And you start seeing different items related to the monarchy and specifically related to coronations. You're seeing staffs, bejeweled swords, there's trumpets. You were moving quite fast past these items because people just kept moving. You know, the line just kept moving and moving. So you kind of have to take it all in as quickly as you can. There's no real stopping to look because the line gets a little congested, therefore adding to my anxiety. But you look at it, you get a chance to look at it, see it, read the little placards that are on it. It, it was um, really beautiful, beautiful items, and mm-hmm. some of it was quite old. We got to see some gold altarpieces after that. There was gold banquet pieces used at the coronations as early as the 19th century, Um, There was some baptismal fonts and basins that they used during the early times of coronation. It's just some old antiquities, some really beautiful um, things that were used not only for coronation during the ceremonies, but since some of these coronations were Catholic, there was Catholic symbolism throughout some of these items, including this 800-year-old anointing spoon. It's one of the oldest things in the collection. Mm Mm-hmm. So then you get to the fantastic ending. The good stuff. The, the, yeah, what you came to see, and that is the crown jewels. So as you come into this area, you end up stepping on to these people movers. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of these people movers, which was on both sides of these big displays with glass on them, are the crown jewels from the monarchy. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. They had some ornate, gorgeous, jeweled, beautiful pieces of art, really, is what it is. And and, uh, so you end up seeing all of that as you go down your people mover. And don't be worried, because if you miss something and you want to see it again, you can get to the end of the people mover, move to your left, go around and get on the people mover on the other side and see it from the other angle. And you can do that as many times as you want. I don't know if you're really allowed to hop on, hop off, and keep going back and forth. I think, did we do that? Yeah. Okay. Nobody stopped us. Nobody stopped No. Yeah. And that was one of the things I heard people talking about. Okay. Is like, as they were going, they said, well, just get back that way and go, yeah. go around and see it again. And I said, okay. So I, I figured it was okay. It was so beautiful. It really was. I really enjoyed that part of the tour and, and the displays in that building that was um, uh, something that we would never see. I mm-hmm. mean, in America, when are you going to ever see something like that? That is so much history. We don't have a monarchy, so we don't have that kind of display in our in our country. So it was a once in a lifetime. Yep. You will also see the largest diamond in the world. Literally. It's 500 carats. It's huge. There's a rock. <laughs> It was huge. It's on the scepter with the cross, and it has been used at every coronation since Charles II in 1661. 
So I guess in the years to come, we may see it used again, huh? Yeah. 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 It was used by Elizabeth. Uh Uh-huh. So we'll see who the next king of England will be. Look for that scepter with the cross because it's put in very prominent display right there. You're not going to miss it. Oh, no. Yeah. So this was the only part of, I think, our visit at the Tower of London where photography was not permitted. So I could see why. So I don't have any photos in our collection of what we saw in the People Mover because it was not allowed. But, but that's but, all online. Yeah. You could, yeah, you can see all that online. But I kind of remember it fairly well. Um, it stood out. A lot of what was there at the Tower of London stood out for me. So let me ask you this. When we went to the Crown Jewels, what did you expect to see and how did what you saw match your expectations? I didn't expect... I thought it would be more museum-like where there was certain rooms partitioned off for certain eras during the monarchy and coronation of this monarch, the coronation of this monarch. And it just wasn't that museum-like depiture that I thought it would be. See, now I expected, knowing that one of the things that's common with probably not only the monarchy, but I just think about heads of state in general, there's this practice where when one head of state meets another there's the exchange of gifts and i imagine that back you know hundreds of years ago when kings of kings and queens of england would have met with kings and queens of the other countries of europe and other places that those meetings might have included the exchange of gifts which would have included jewels so i i imagine to see not only the stuff that we saw in there but i would i expected to see basically just a bigger collection and a collection that had more of kind of this history of how the monarchy connected with other rulers throughout time and i didn't see that but i do know that the monarchy has they do have an, an immense stash of jewels yeah far and, beyond and they what's have here. many other buildings that they own so i'm sure you know we, we will talk further about you know the other place that yeah. we went to that i'm sure there's stuff stashed mm-hmm. there the monarchy is still active so i'm sure a lot of that stuff that was given to them is in their possession. And, and maybe to your point too, it maybe it's scattered in other sites to see throughout England. Yeah. Again, there, there's some pretty magnificent things to see here. Mm-hmm. I thought we'd see more, but it was pretty neat, the stuff that we did see. Yeah. After we visited the Crown Jewels, we stepped outside and I think it was toward the riverside. You come across a chapel, and this is the Chapel Royal of St. Peter Ad Vincula is the name of, of this church. It's a modest-sized church. You know, we walked in. You had you know an area with some pews that led up to an altar. Among the history with this particular place is you do have several dozen notable people who are buried in the chapel. It, it's at this place where Anne Boleyn is buried. And uh, just outside, there was a memorial to several of the people who were executed there. Her name is mentioned on there as well. Her name is mentioned on that. And it was said that after execution, her body was brought directly into this chapel. Mm. There is at the the foot of her altar tomb, at least at the time of our visit, and I I imagine this is probably perpetually happening there. There was a a placement of flowers. There was a Bible on the floor. Yeah, I saw it. Also buried here are Catherine Howard, another one of the wives of Henry VIII. 
along with a few Catholic saints, including Thomas More and John Fisher. Now, Thomas More's body is buried in the chamber, but his head is not buried with the body. As was the usual practice for people who were executed by beheading, his head was boiled and then placed on a spike over London Bridge, the same spike where John Fisher's head was previously displayed for a two-week period. And that was to serve as a warning to other people. Yes, this is their terror ring. This is saying, you know, you don't do as I say, this may happen to you. And then it turned out that Thomas More's daughter, Margaret, she would be able to manage to retrieve his head, and then the skull was buried with her when she died some nine years later. Hmm. And to this day, I still don't know the answer to this, but when you walk into the chapel, there's a very prominent, it looks like a tomb, Mm -hmm. kind of in the Mm -hmm. center, that my memory is there's the images of two people. Yeah. Yeah. Lay, laying there i don't remember who it was or if they know who was buried who there was. there was no like marking that said who it was i remember when we were in there we were trying to look for some information about just because it was so prominent this must be an important burial place but we didn't see who it was and since then even when we were doing the research for the tower of london it just didn't jump up at me anywhere so that's a question i still have records somewhere we just don't know well somebody knows and if you listen to this and if you happen to know drop drop us a line because i'd like to know and it just hasn't come up in my uh googling thus far the next building that we entered into is called the beecham spelled b-e-a-u-c-h-a-m-p tower It was where the prisoners were held. I don't think it originally was meant for that purpose. It was probably meant for apartments for visitors of the royals to stay in. But during the reign of Elizabeth, especially Henry VIII's daughter, she had sent a lot of people to prison. And this was one of the areas that she sent them to. It was very interesting. Um, You came up into this tower and immediately you're hit with graffiti. You see etchings within the stone walls of these towers. And there are many, many well-known people that have been imprisoned here over the centuries. And many, many pieces of graffiti, especially some of the walls. I can't imagine what it was like to to be in a tower like this, knowing that you were probably going to be killed. Mm -hmm. And some people were there for years before they were either killed. Some were released. Probably, I mean, undergoing a a mental torture. You know, if you're you're held captive, you don't know what your fate is going to be, how long you're going to be here. Yeah, and I think that was a big part of it. I think there was a lot of mental torture. There was a lot of Catholics Um, who refused to accept the Protestant faith that were imprisoned here by Queen Elizabeth I. The writings and images that are sketched on these walls are pretty powerful in themselves. You can see the angst and the pleas of some of these prisoners just be there, just, you know, having to endure years and years of that kind of mental torture. Some of it was from priests and you can see markings of crosses and some Latin writing that depict certain prayers. 
There are some that are from two brothers, the Poole brothers, that were in prison for political reasons. So many of these prisoners left these very beautiful, intricate, and poignant messages on these walls as their last message for the world. I found it pretty sobering you know, mm-hmm. to be reading the things that they wrote there because you could tell that they were grappling with that time in their life where they were facing meeting their maker. And yeah. a lot of those writings were almost that kind of writing between the messages between this world and the next world and the fate of their souls. Yeah. It was just for faith, just for believing yeah. in a certain way. And one of those people was Thomas Abel. He he was the chaplain of uh, Queen Catherine of Aragon, who was the first wife of mm. Henry VIII. And he carved his name in a bell into the wall. And he was imprisoned there by uh, King Henry VIII. And the two brothers I spoke about, Arthur and Edmund Poole, were accused of plotting to secure the throne for Mary, Queen of Scots. So there's quite a history there between Elizabeth I Mm. and Mary, Queen of Scots, who Mm -hmm. were sisters. There was another guy there, I think, who had some conniving to do some overthrowing of the throne, yes? Yes, there was. His name was Guy Fawkes. He had an immense history that is still talked about today Mm -hmm. in England. So he was, over 400 years ago, he was held prisoner at the Tower. And he's the reason that, to this day, England has bonfires and fireworks on the 5th of November. It was on that day that he had a plan to blow up the House of Lords at the opening of Parliament in 1605 and kill the king, who was James I. He wanted to blow them all the kingdom come, he says. But he was found out by somebody must have snarked on him and they found out his plan and he was locked up and executed there's even um some talk of guy fawkes being a hero but there's also people that say if you looked at him today he would mm-hmm. be called a terrorist yep uh, we also have uh saint thomas more who was imprisoned there by henry the eighth and he ultimately was beheaded on the tower hill in uh, 1535 But later, he was sainted by the Catholic Church. And one fact that is little known and not well displayed at the Tower of uh, London either is that the Jewish community was treated quite horribly. English Jews, they were subject to high taxes in the 1200s. And if they couldn't pay, they were imprisoned with their families in the Tower 600 Jews were imprisoned in uh, 1278, and they were accused of shaving off the silver off the edge of coins. Uh, many of them were innocent, but they were still, you know, over 250 of them were hung on Tower Hill. Mm-hmm. Not, not well known. I remember when we were in this particular building, it caught my eye that there were some, some of the placards that were describing what we were seeing. There was language on some of them that had statements to the effect of, Well, there were not that many executions here, Mm -hmm. and there was not that much torture here, almost as if to, uh, I don't know, to make it sound like it wasn't as bad as it really was. I mean, I don't know how how many executions and how much torture do you need to be considered many? I mean, to me, you know, when you knew that uh, hundreds and hundreds of people were held prisoner, were tortured, suffered mental anguish. Hundreds were killed 
that those statements of well it wasn't that many just um it just struck me as well geez that's 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 an odd way to to put it (laughs) because you know you might say that that one of those types of circumstances is too many yeah it's interesting too that most people think that the church of england and the reformation that happened also Mm. was a time when england turned completely to protestantism Mm. but there were still many catholics within england itself especially all the former uh, roman empire in the west they stayed relatively catholic when you know henry the eighth decided to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and she said no. She she did not agree to it. And then the fury was set upon the Catholic Church. Most people don't know that in that fury, by a Protestant historian, he estimates that 72,000 Catholics were killed. Hmm. And I've ne- I never heard that number before. And I don't know if he's right, but that's one number that I, I, I never heard before. And when you think about that time in history, the political dynamic, I mean, I could see that plausible in just the way human life was treated or not valued when you went against those in power. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see oh, yeah. that happening. Oh, yeah. But it's interesting that Catholicism still had a hold within the monarchy, even after Henry VIII declared, yeah. you know, that, that he would no longer follow the faith. It is said that even Henry VIII did a pilgrimage because they were still, there was many places within England that had Catholic history and there were still p- pilgrimages mm. to sacred places there. And it was said that even Henry VIII uh, made a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Walsingham. And that is, uh, that still exists today. There's a cathedral there, which someday we need to go to. That was something he did asking for favor for something. And as did many kings before him. Henry III did. They said Edward I did, gave credit to Our Lady of Walsingham for saving him from falling rock or something while he was playing a chess game or something. I mean, there's so many stories like that that we don't hear. So, I mean, just in the moment as we're talking about this, and I haven't thought about this before, but, you know, I could see that Henry VIII must have had an interesting spiritual side and understanding because on the one hand, when the whole debacle with Rome happened, his reaction wasn't that I'm breaking off from not only the Catholic Roman Church, but from church in general, he still continued a connectivity with church. Mm-hmm. He just completely reconfigured it to be like his own church. Yeah. And then when you think about what you just mentioned too, there had to be in his mind still some kind of longing for continuing to have a spiritual connection and a spiritual mm-hmm. hold, but it became twisted in some way. Right, right. And I bet there's books out there that probably are written about aspects of that. So mm-hmm. that, that could be interesting to look into someday and see how people try right. to explain away his... Yeah. Uh, and those times were yeah. so precarious, yeah. too. I mean, there was so much going on. Yeah. Before we leave the Beecham Tower, one of the other things, I believe it was in the same tower that we saw, that you probably spent a little bit more time looking at than I did, <laughs> were the implements of torture that were used on the prisoners and i think yeah i walked away from this place calling it the house of horrors i was looking for richard neville i guess and we've we've seen things like this i think in some of our other travels and other places but 
I can't stand looking at these tools of torture that were used to, you know, I mean, just do the these horrific, horrific things to people's bodies and make them suffer. A few of them are on display. So that is among the things that you can see when you visit the tower. Yeah, it's not a big display. No. It's very brief. And- but... I mean, there there's enough there to give you, uh, you know, a pretty good sense of what people were put through. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the one hand, you've got the the places of isolation in the tower, and then you've got the implements of, of torture as well. Mm-hmm. So one digression for a second, and maybe one plug of a sorts for what it is that we're trying to do with this podcast. Leading up to this, I ended up doing some searching on one on like I think a few of the podcast engines that just to see what else was out there that people have shared with their travels to the Tower of London and it seems like it's like 95% at least of what I came across everything was about the haunted history and the hauntings of the Tower of London. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand when you do know what happened here throughout history the deaths, the executions, the torture, then I could see how people you know, lead off and spin that into the spirits remain, haunting, etc. But I also found it interesting that there wasn't a lot, that, at least that I found, of people sharing, you know, what is it like to visit this place? So I do kind of hope that as people hear our story, they get a sense of, you know, what it is you're going to see because it, it's more than the haunted house. Yes, because these tortures and deaths, it wasn't something that was always there. Mm-hmm. And the monarchy, especially Henry III, who was a very generous, wonderful monarch who fed the poor mm. and, and took care of his people. I mean, that history is there, too. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so as we've spent some time on some doom and gloom and yes. dark side of things, why don't we turn to some lighter side of things? And <laughs> I think we have a couple of fun facts. All right, a fun fact is they have at the castle a present-day raven master. There are great precautions taken to make sure that these birds don't disappear here at the castle. There's an old legend that if the ravens ever left, the castle would crumble into dust and great harm would befall the country. That myth is believed to uh, date back to the 17th century when King Charles II declared that the ravens must be permanently kept at the tower. However, the folkloric beliefs surrounding the birds are probably much older because some evidence suggesting that it may ultimately derive from elements of Celtic mythology in which the raven was imbued with power including a talismanic and protective nature. Magic. That Celtic stuff had a lot of magic in it. Mm -hmm. Another thing we learned about is the secret bar. So it turns out that in the evenings when tourists leave at about 6 p.m. and the 700-year-old Ceremony of the Keys ritual locks up the complex for the night, the Tower of London becomes a very different place. After hours, it belongs to the few dozen families that live within the castle, and the iconically outfitted yeoman guards head to a private pub that's tucked within the fortress walls. The super-exclusive Yeoman Warders Club is only open to 37 members and their guests of the Yeoman Warder of Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress, 
the Tower of London, and members of the Sovereign's Bodyguard of the Yeoman Guard Extraordinary, and that's a mouthful. All of those terminologies are distilled into another term, which is the Beef Eaters. So if you've heard of Beef Eaters Gin, uh, you've got the Beef Eaters here. So the Beef Eaters have guarded the Tower of London since 1485, and they were originally charged with guarding the Tower prisoners and protecting the crown jewels, Today, they serve more as tourist guides. There used to be many bars within the walls of the Tower of London, but today only one remains, and it's this one. It's called The Keys, and the pub is 150 years old, and the beef eaters take turns working the bar, which serves locally brewed Yeoman 1485 and Beef Eater Bitter on tap, and of course, a whole lot of Beef Eater Gin. And when they do their drinking, they utter a long-held superstitious toast, which is, may you never die a yeoman warder. The pub is private and off-limits unless you're a member of the yeoman warders, which almost well, none of us are. But it's been open to the public once a year during the London Open House weekend. So perhaps if you plan a trip to the Tower of London, if you're able to have it coincide with whenever London Open House weekend is, perhaps you might visit the uh, secret bar and the bar that's uh, very, very difficult to ever visit. All right, let's kind of wrap this up a little bit. And uh, I was... During this podcast, very surprised to learn that Richard Neville was, in fact, part of this Tower of London history. More to your story. Yes, he was a very bad, bad, bad person. But I am glad I finally got that connection. Very crowded place. You have to be ready for that. Uh, Most people are fine with that. They do well with it. Some people aren't. I'm in the latter group. Mm -hmm. So when you do go... Hopefully this podcast will help you decide, you know, what's the best way to get there, how to when to enter in and what to hit first. As I mentioned at the beginning, I had totally different expectations of what this place was and was very very pleased and and uh surprised and fascinated by what I saw. And even in the reading, I think when I probably did a couple of TripAdvisor looks, one of the things I always try to do is when we, I know we're going to a certain place, I try to get a sense of, okay, what, how long does the, does the average tourist spend at a place? And when reading about the Tower of London, I kept coming across two or three hours is the average visit. We ended up spending six hours mm-hmm. here, and there was probably still a few more things that we could have we seen. We could have seen, but we tend to not rush through things and try to soak up as much as we can. Mm, so fair, I think yeah. I think we're not the typical type of tourist that hits something and, and uh, walks through something and just tries to get a general overview of things. We, we want to dig deeper than that. Yeah. And since there is, I think, a good chance that you're going to find quite a bit to immerse yourself in at this attraction, I, for me, I think this would be one that I would recommend when you plan to visit the tower of london i would avoid planning to do this plus any other notable tourist attraction on the same day Mm -hmm. give this one its due reserve a day for this place if you do it in a shorter amount of time then you can enjoy what the city of london has to offer Mm -hmm. but if you end up spending more time then at least you will have planned 
for that won't feel rushed mm-hmm. and uh ho- hopefully you'll enjoy this visit because it's a fascinating place of history yeah. and if you arrive more towards the opening time of the tower of london it was a bit less crowded when we first entered we we yeah. got there early and it was a bit less crowded by the time we were done with the white tower and stepping out of that, it was quite packed and quite crowded. Mm-hmm. So it filled up quite quickly. I would recommend if you're more of an early bird, you know, try to get there early. Absolutely. Hey, and if somebody was an early bird and they get to the Tower of London, once they get through the gates, Julie, what do you think is the first thing at the Tower of London that they should see? What do I think? Yeah. Oh, the crown jewels. Yeah. Go first because yeah. you're going to miss that line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Out of every place in, within the complex, that had the longest that was yeah fact, that was maybe disneyland the, maybe the only line yeah that was that was like a disneyland yeah thing. so get there early and go straight to the crown jewels and then you'll avoid the line and in fact that strategy right there might shave up to an hour off of your yeah, yeah. your day at the tower of london yeah. mm-hmm if you do spend a longer time at this attraction, know that there is a cafeteria on site. Again, you know, we, we had no idea we were going to be there for as long as we were. We ended up grabbing tomato soup and bread, just something to fill up our yeah, stomachs. It, it was a nice cafeteria. Yeah, they they're, had they're, a they're, lot of uh, different options. And um, it was, you know, more buffet style. I mean, they served the food for you, but you would go up to windows that had food displayed and mm-hmm. you would say, you know, I want this, this, and this. Yeah. Very busy cafeteria though, mm-hmm. huh? Oh, yeah. very. Yeah. Very busy. Yeah. So that's our recap of the Tower of London. Hope we've been able to give you a description of what to expect when you visit here. As you listen to our podcast, if you find the information useful for your vacation planning and trip planning, we hope you give us a like on the podcast engine of your choice. And we have a few more recaps of things we did in London and a couple of other parts of England that we still have coming up. So we hope you join us in the weeks to come. Love to hear your comments. If you have any, please leave it on our podcast site. If you've been there, especially, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for coming to the places where we go. If you have any comments or info to share with us, about travel, you can write us at comments at theplaceswherewego.com. You can also follow us on social media. Right now we're on Twitter and Instagram, both at The Places Where We Go. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you at The Places Where We Go. See you next time. Bye now.